Welcome back to the Book Collector podcast after the summer break. I trust everything happened as you all hoped it would happen and that what surprises there were had happy endings. Our last podcast concerned Ian Fleming, founder of the Book Collector. This one concerns his older brother Peter, who was always considered the better writer of the two. In addition to his best-selling travel books, he wrote many pieces for the Times newspaper, and at one point, indeed, he was their special correspondent, and among them were what were then called fourth leaders, articles of wit and learning unconnected with the great events of the day. They were invariably unsigned, but we know from family copies which Peter wrote. Today's pieces are from 1953. There are 7,000 puzzles and the intrepid advertiser. The reader is James Fleming. 7,000 puzzles. I quote, Number of hours needed to complete 7,000 crossword puzzles. That's a clue that faint-hearted fans may hesitate to face. The true addict, swallowing today his 7,000th dose in the Times, will not care how high may be the figure in the correct answer. Time well spent is time gained, and it was a red-letter day 22 years ago on which the first crossword slipped slyly into the weekly edition. The sweet mischief spread. Wooed by the pleadings of a naval officer, Lieutenant Commander A.C. Powell, whose surname deserves to be accepted as the only legitimate solution to public benefactor, six letters. The daily paper was won. At first there were protests from austere readers that dignity was being compromised and the respectability of the new venture had faithfully to be vindicated by printing a puzzle in each of the classical languages. When it was observed at the university chess match that one of the Oxford players had a copy of the Greek puzzle beside his board, which he completed just as his opponent resigned, there was some evidence that the masterminds of the future were prepared to accept the revolution. All that was long ago. The diehards who could not compromise must be taken to have abandoned the Times for some newspaper which does not print crosswords, presumably for the London Gazette. They have been replaced by a generation of devotees. It is an eclectic, versatile, whimsical, cultivated fellowship, an audience of intellectual magpies, and to keep faith with it while keep it guessing is the puzzle that always taxes and sometimes defeats the setter of the puzzles. His influence being so fundamental, it is natural that much curiosity has been expressed concerning his identity by solvers who have written to the editor in these 22 years. Evidence has been found that he is a canon of Barchester and a member of the Pickwick Club, attends concerts of classical music only, but keeps in touch with the frivolities of the contemporary stage, regrets the advance of mechanisation, but consoles himself by growing rare blooms for the Royal Horticultural Society's shows. Whether these are different aspects of the same personality, or whether more than one hand has been at work, is a debated question of textual criticism. Some have even fancied they detected a feminine touch here and there. A promising theory that the setter held a chair of classical archaeology at one of the ancient universities collapsed only this week, when he disclosed his belief that the voice of Stentor, 
admittedly as loud as those of any 50 of the other Greek heroes before Troy, could be heard in the as-yet-unfounded Rome. Evidently, though a polymath, he is not quite omniscient. Some minor problems will be plain sailing for those who have solved 7,000 puzzles. They may be reminded, however, that as they peer into the mists of anonymity, it is possible that they themselves may be scrutinised, across and down, by an equally inquiring eye. According to the historian Kinglake, a shrewd, idle clergyman was once employed with the sole duty of haunting clubs and other places of resort until he found one sentiment constantly repeated from lip to lip and thus ripe for publication. Some descendant of that useful spy might well be at the service of the setter of the puzzles. How otherwise is he to interpret that rainbow-tinted ragbag of unrelated facts and impressions, of memories conscious and submerged, which makes up the mind of this psychoanalytic age? How, unaided, is he to gauge the form of a company that has come together only on the basis of a common taste for anagrams, slight of verbal handling and literary illusion? After all, in 7,000 puzzles, there are about 200,000 clues to the mental processes of the kind of people who enjoy them, and victims of the setter can console themselves by reflecting that he makes most mistakes of judgment and has the worst perennial headache. The Intrepid Advertiser Once more an advertiser in the agony column, in making known his availability for employment, has added to the impressive list of his qualifications the rider, danger no object. One sees in broad terms what he means, but one cannot help wondering, for the dominions of danger are very extensive, what type or types of peril were uppermost in his mind when he wrote down those three dismissive words. It may have depended partly, one cannot help suspecting, on his reading habits at an impressionable age. For it is mainly, alas, from fiction that one might derive the impression that readers of the times are often on the lookout for agents of abnormal intrepidity. It is incontestable that the dangers to which authors expose their characters have tended during the current century to increase in severity. Anyone brought up on Antony Hope, for instance, will be likely to form a comparatively mild estimate of the sort of straits in which he might find himself as a consequence of saying that he had no objection to danger. An occasional revolver shot, the odd bite of sword play on the moonlit cobbles, these might alarm you if you were capable of alarm, and might, of course, prove fatal even if you were not. But they did not, as you peered speculatively into the future which might hold them, make your blood run cold. Under John Buchan and A.E.W. Mason, the going got tougher, but not much tougher. Dastardly though their villains were, they generally had a streak of something akin to sportsmanship. With Buchan especially, there was a certain imprecision, an aura of vagueness about their malpractices. You feared them more for what they were than for what they actually did. Sapper came nearing to taking the gloves off when he equipped the ineffable Lakington with an acid bath, and just before the last war the hero of Mr. Geoffrey Household's rogue mail was given, mostly by foreigners of course, an extraordinarily unpleasant time. It is nevertheless difficult to resist the conclusion 
that in the 20s and 30s anyone romantic enough to put danger no object in an advertisement was probably thinking of what may be termed the more enjoyable types of danger. The secret passage and the secret crocodile, the eerie laugh as the key turned unexpectedly in the lock, the pistol spitting in the darkness as the black limousine swung out of the park gates and headed for the coast. Today, it is to be feared, the fences are rather higher. Automatic weapons are more frequently employed, torture is often resorted to, and Dr. Lakington's acid bath is a mere bow and arrow compared with some of the appliances which science has made available to the modern malefactor. Worse still, a number of extraterrestrial hazards have cropped up, and the soldier of fortune who had hoped for an assignment in Strelzow a cutting-out expedition in the Godalming area, or a manhunt in the Highlands, might well view a little queasily the prospect of being popped into a spaceship and bunged off to Mars. Danger, no object, is a brave phrase. But it depends, really, what you mean by danger. Once more, the Book Collector podcast is returning to the Times' fourth leaders, on this occasion for 1950. The articles, Mr. Henty's Shrine, and Paper Chase are read by James Fleming. At Henty's Shrine Many more or less elderly gentlemen must have experienced a variety of emotions on learning the taste in literature of the boy readers of Shoreditch between 14 and 18. They may have felt sad, but reconciled to the fact that the young gentleman will not read Scott pitied them for not liking The Prisoner of Zender, rejoiced that they do like Treasure Island and an Huckleberry Finn. They have perhaps borne up over Robinson Crusoe's decline, never having been very sound about him themselves, and as to what is apparently the most popular book of all, The Saint, the old fogies may have to confess that they had never heard of it. But all such sentiments are mild and cool, compared with the really heartwarming glow produced by the news of their once-beloved Henty. He is, I quote, a great deal more popular than would be commonly thought, and there is, quote, a regular consistent demand for him. The thought of him brings back to them all manner of beautiful memories. There was the practical certainty, as Christmas drew near, of at least one brand new Henty with a liberal splash of gilding on the cover. It more than compensated for the irritation of being annually and condescendingly addressed in the preface as My Dear Lads. To some there may return a very particular vision. It is tea time in the dining hall of a private school. The sound of the chumping of bread and butter is gradually dying away. Then there is heard from the dais a voice proclaiming Those who have finished may read. Instantly. As if by a conjuring trick, some fifty or sixty hentes are produced from nowhere and slapped down upon the table. The curious thing about these now elderly hente fans, that vulgarism was unknown in their young days, that their affection is a purely sentimental and unreasoning one. They know better than to put to a practical test by rereading one of their old favourites. It is, indeed, one of the remarkable features of those works that the titles remain so clear and everything else is so dim. In Times of Peril was the Indian Mutiny and by sheer pluck a shanty.
with Clive in India and the young Carthaginians, explain themselves. St. George for England was surely Cressy, or was it by chance Agincourt? It is easy enough to reel off those lovely names, but what was it all about? Not so much as the ghost of an incident remains. Yet something does remain, namely a little, a very little history. There are some who can still recite with quite an air the names of the generals who fought against Gustavus Adolphus from having once known the Lion of the North. That may not be much, but it is something. To try to regain more would be rash, for it would probably be to lose all. There are certain books the reading of which is foolhardy in the extreme. Even dear Captain Marriott is dangerous. The jokes about Captain's good, beautiful white legs have been known to Paul in King Solomon's minds, though Gagool and the diamonds and the gorgeous fighting may carry the reader through. It is a dreadful moment for the browser in beloved old pastures when he feels a conviction that the charm has gone and that he is going to be bored. There is nothing for it but to shut up the book, instantly, tenderly, and forever. Paper Chase It must have been with something of the slightly vulgar curiosity evoked by the details of other people's wills that the British public studied the particulars revealed the other day by Sir Stafford Cripps of the varying tonnages of paper used during 1949 by the departments of His Majesty's Government. Between them, they got through just under 40,000 tonnes. To some people, this figure will seem disgracefully high, to others remarkably low. This wide divergence of views being due to the fact that very few of us are capable of, so to speak, rendering down a tonne of paper into subunits which are within our own comprehension. None of us, for instance, knows how much paper he or she used in 1949. All the letters that we wrote, all the parcels we wrapped up at Christmas, the exercise books we got for the children, the hats out of the crackers, the pages of our pocket diary, the race cars, the theatre programmes, the tickets given us by cloakroom attendants. As we look back on the paper we consumed, we find it extraordinarily difficult to assess it in terms of avoirdupois. A hundredweight? It sounds a lot in one way, not very much in another. We rarely prefer not to make an estimate. This culpable vagueness is not, fortunately, shared by our rulers, and Sir Stafford Cripps's list is full of suggestive data. Far and away the biggest bull in the paper market is the Postmaster General, who besides using up 3,720 tonnes on, one presumes, postage stamps and telegraph forms, converted a further 8,460 tonnes into telephone directories, some of the numbers in which we remember to have been quite frequently, if not very quickly, available during 1949. It is a little surprising to find the Minister of Health at the bottom of the pole with only 260 tonnes, and farmers who are better judges of a tonne than most people will be astonished to learn that the Ministry of Agricultural and Fisheries used only 800 tonnes. It felt like much more. Anyone who has had any dealings with the Ministry of Town and Country Planning will be unfavourably impressed by its failure, apparently, to divulge the details of its paper consumption. Neither it 
nor the Home Office figures on Sir Tafford Cripps's list, and his total must accordingly be accepted with reserve. Pride rather than amazement will be the dominant emotion in soldiers who note that the War Office, notching up 4,560 tonnes, was nearly 2,000 tonnes ahead of either of the other service departments. The General Staff, never niggardly in its distribution of paper during the stern years of war, is clearly determined that there shall be no relaxation of its standards in the softer atmosphere of peace. The Foreign Office might perhaps have got by on less than 1,680 tons if it had departed from its practice of using rather long words, but this would probably have been a false economy in the long run. On the whole, most Britons will feel that a government which can rule 50 million people for 365 days with 40,000 tonnes of paper is not doing too badly. It works out at roughly two pounds of paper for each citizen, which is equivalent to ten average copies of the Times, speaking strictly in quantitative terms, of course. Tune in next week for another Book Collector podcast. And in the meantime, visit www.thebookcollector.co.uk to read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal. It's less than the price of a Netflix subscription and far more valuable. You can receive four beautiful quarterly issues, plus get access to our entire digital archive, 70 years of erudite articles, illustrations, reviews, news, obituaries, auction reports, and more. Everything you could want to know about book collecting. Whether you're researching, learning, or just browsing for fun, it's the place to go. Visit www.thebookcollector.co.uk today.